I want to invite you to uh, take your Bibles, and uh, the Bible's there in the seats, page 1205, as we turn to um, 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, which is the focus of our uh, time together this morning. And uh, the specific issue in this particular chapter is the return uh, of the Lord, the consummation, if you will, of history, the second coming of Jesus. Uh, the second coming is part of the last stage of human history. And uh, if you've been tracking with us, uh, you know, if you have a biblical worldview, uh, you know that human history had a beginning and it has an ending. And uh, in this particular section of uh, the scriptures, uh, you remember there were some false teachers. And the false teachers said this. They said, everything continues on as it has been from the beginning. Remember? That was the teaching that was going on. Everything just continues on the same way it's always been. Uh, verse 4, the second part of verse 4, ever since our fathers died, everything goes on uh, as uh, it has since the beginning of creation. But then Peter says something very interesting. He says in verse 5 that people who say that and think that way, uh, verse 5, deliberately forget two things, two things. And I, I would tell you that these people, these false teachers in Peter's day, were like the original evolutionists. Because they forget the same two things that evolution is based on today. What are the two things? Verse 5, they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, creation happened. How did creation happen? Did it happen naturally? Did some ooze bump into some other ooze and eventually here we all are? Or is God's word enough to create everything that is? And he says, these false teachers, number one, deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed, the earth was formed out of water and by water. And the second thing that these people forget is that by these waters, also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. The flood. Creation and the flood are what the false teachers of Peter's day, only maybe 30 years out from Jesus going back to heaven, looking, talking about Christ's return. When is Jesus coming back? And uh, these are the two things. Notice they deliberately forget these two things, the creation and the catastrophe of Noah's flood. And I say they're like um, the, 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 the original evolutionists. If you forget those two things, if you deliberately ignore the creation and the flood, well, there's room for all kinds of theories about how human history came about, about the origins of the universe. There's all kinds of theories. Um, I want to suggest to you this morning that you might think of a biblical worldview in terms of seven C's, seven C's, the first of which is creation. Um, and the Bible tells us that when the creation happened, it was perfect. You remember God stands back, evaluates everything he made. It is good, it is good, it is good. He doesn't look at the creation at the time you know, of, of the creation and say, oh, it's filled with violence and bloodshed and, and, and there's been you know, millions of years of death and dying and corruption and that's finally got us to what, what we would say in the Bible is the beginning point. No. He says the creation is good. The second C, you might say, is um, corruption, um, the fall of Adam. 
uh, the, the, the corruption that uh, came into the creation, uh, the fall of Adam, the curse that God put on his creation. Remember the, the curse? The death enters here at the fall. Uh, the angelic beings, most people think, the, the so-called sons of God who cohabited with the women that God created and the corruption of the world um, uh, that led then to um, the, the, the flood, the, the catastrophe of the flood, the worldwide flood. The Bible says the whole world was flooded, the 40 uh, days of Noah's ark and, and rain and so on and so forth. And then you can say, uh, after that came confusion. You had the Jewish people, you had Abraham was called, and the Jewish people came together, and uh, they, uh, the promised Messiah was going to come through the Jewish people. Uh, but all the confusion and the refusal of the Jewish people to cooperate with God, to listen to God, and, and so on and so forth, you might say that there was a whole period of um, confusion, and then came Christ, Christmas. These are kind of the epic uh, kind of movements in, in a biblical uh, mindset of, of history. And then after that comes the cross, and Christ dies on the cross. And, um, and then finally, after that comes the consummation, the end of human history as we know it, that the Bible talks about. And so there's like these seven big movements of history, and the big thing is this that God intervenes in the history of mankind to bring some of these events about. In the theory of evolution, it's a closed system, and everything continues on as it always has been. There's no intervention by God. Everything's a natural process, right? And uh, that's what these original people were saying, that this is just a, a natural uh, system. And so what Peter is talking about here is the consummation. He's talking about the future. He's talking about the consummation, uh, the return of Christ, and the consummation of uh, human history. It's part of the consummation, the end of the age, that Jesus is coming back. It's the climax, if you will, biblically speaking, to the day of salvation. You and I are living in what the Bible describes as the day of salvation. And at the end is what's called, all through the Bible, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. The day of judgment that's coming. And we are living in the day of salvation, but when Jesus comes back, he'll initiate, you know, the day of the Lord and the time of judgment on God's enemies, the redemption of God's people. And uh, it's the time of Christ's earthly kingdom. It's the time for the new Jerusalem. It's time for the bodily resurrection. It's time for a righteous world system that the Bible talks about in Revelation that's coming our way. And so when we live in expectation, as Margie pointed out, when we live with that sense of expectation that someday the Lord's going to enter into human history again as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, it changes us. And uh, when we have a, a sense of expectation, it infuses us with hope. When we know that the Lord's coming back and our bodies are going to be redeemed and the world is going to be changed and the enemies of God are going to be judged, it fills us with hope and motivation and passion to cooperate with God in the day of salvation, in what God has called us to do. 1 John 3.3 3 says this, everyone who has this hope in them purifies themselves. If you really expect that someday you're going to meet Jesus face to face like we sang about this morning, you know, when I stand in glory, I will see your face. Well, you really have that expectation. You, it changes you. You're, you're looking forward to it, right? And then when it's delayed, now these people are only 30 years out. We're a couple thousand years from the time Jesus went back to heaven. And people today say the same thing. Where's the promise of his coming? 
I hear Christians say, you know, why doesn't he get here? Why doesn't he take care of this? Doesn't he know that the world's a mess? What's he waiting for? Why doesn't Jesus come back and, and, and clean up this mess like he's promised and so forth? If we forget or ignore the fact that Jesus is coming back, if we argue over the details and the timing to the point that we just get frustrated with it, to the point that we only focus on this life, if we forget the expectation that's promised us, and we settle for listening to the noise of the turnpike and the rustling of our own lives and all of the little noises that fill our everyday lives, and we ignore this expectation, this promise that Jesus is coming back, well, then we grow sort of anemic to spiritual realities, to eternal realities. We begin to live as if this little temporary life is all there is. And then we're no different from the rest of the world. And our, uh, our, our ability to act as God's representatives goes down uh, as a result of... Um, you know, not focusing on this. You remember Jesus warned when he was here, he says, you know, there's always going to be skeptics and scoffers and false teachers in the church. And uh, Jesus, when he was here, he said in uh, Matthew 13, you know, that uh, when the good seed is sown by the farmer, the enemy comes behind and sows weeds. Remember that little parable? You know, and that's always the case. And, and, and they asked Jesus, you know, well, should we pull out the weeds? And he said, no, don't try to get rid of the weeds because you'll uproot, you know, the good seed. But at the end, at the harvest, that's when we'll sort everything out. And so in the church in Peter's day, there were these people who denied and rejected the whole idea that Jesus is coming back and the judgment that's going to come with it. And the same is so true today. Today it's called uniformitarianism. Uniformitarianism. And it's, it's the premise on which evolution is based. Uh, and the whole idea is this, that the present is the key to the past. Not that God's word is the key to the past so that we can understand what happened in the past, but that the present. So if I dig up a fossil today, I have that fossil in the present. From that fossil, I will assume that everything in the past is the same as it is today, and I make my conjectures about what happened in the past based on what's happening today instead of God's word. And uh, really, that's the basis of evolution, that the present is the key to the past because everything stays the same. And so everything is the product of natural processes, which simply does not allow for God to intervene in his own creation, as the Bible reveals to us over the course of human history. And uh, this whole notion is especially accepted in the field of geology, and it's used to dismiss uh, the notion of the flood today. Uh, if you ask an evolutionist if the flood ever happened, if it happened at all, they will say it was localized. And that the fossil record that's all over the world is not the result of the flood, but it's the result of millions and millions of years. A biblical worldview is open to the idea that God intervenes in his own creation in supernatural ways. And so the return of Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, is all over the place in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And those who deny it, uh, deny that it'll ever happen, do so on the basis that God never has and never will intervene in the natural processes of uh, creation. And so the return of Jesus is the focus. And so in verse 8, Peter uh, today gives his response to these critics. Uh, how would you respond to an evolutionist today? Uh, what would you say? And uh, verse 8, you know, Peter begins his response. He says, do not forget this one thing. He's telling his church, uh, the people that he's writing to, don't forget this one thing. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. 
Now, this is a, you know, a pretty well-known verse. It's used in a lot of different ways, some legitimate, I think, and some not so legitimate. But one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. In other words, God's clock is not the same as our clock, right? This is a good day to be talking about clocks, right? God's clock is not the same as our clock. Our clock might seem to be moving fast, you know, but we live in time, which was created by God. Uh, time is a part of the creation. God lives in eternity where there is no time. Time is a part of the creation, and you and I at the time, right now are trapped in, and, and imprisoned in the creation, and as a result, imprisoned in the notion of time. Uh, God lives in eternity where there is no time. And remember, you know, when uh, uh, Moses asked God, you know, well, what am I going to tell the people? What, what's your name? Who am I going to tell them sent me? And you remember God said, well, my name is I am. Not I was, not I will be, but I am. I, I am in the past. I am in the present. I am in the future. I am. To me, everything is in the present. To us, that's a hard notion to grasp. Because we're part of creation, and as a part of creation, we're caught up in time. Time's a, a part of creation, but God is not, and God is always. He's always, always is always present with God. And to us, things happen, you know, a day at a time, but to God, he sees all things in the present. And so our text says, look, don't be ignorant of this. Don't forget this. Don't uh, insist that we can extrapolate from what we observe in the present in time and insist that God be limited by our observations. Don't take what we live with and, uh, and put it onto God and insist that he has to think like we do. And especially when it comes time to waiting for the Lord to come back, some people you know, get impatient. And uh, we're thinking, wow, what's the delay? Why so long? And some people are, you know... Um, uh, unwilling to, you know, even believe that the Lord actually is going to come back and that history will have an end and that we'll just keep evolving and evolving and evolving forever and ever and ever. But God is outside the box of creation. And uh, uh, Peter is saying, look, don't, don't forget this. Don't be ignorant about this. Some people are ignorant because they're willfully ignorant. You know, in this text, Peter says in uh, verse 5 that these people deliberately forget the creation and the flood. Deliberately, on purpose. In other words, they know about it, but they deliberately are going to deny it. Other people, I think, are ignorant of these things simply because of neglect. And uh, they don't pay attention. They don't want to know. They don't care, and, and so on and so forth. But Peter says, don't, don't ever think that God has to act according to our table timetable. What might seem like a delay to us is right on schedule to God. And Peter is probably uh, restating Psalm 90, verse 4. And Psalm 90 says, you know, for a thousand years in your sight are like a day gone by, or like an evening gone, like a day that has just gone by. And so, again, I say these people, they were only 30 years out, and they're looking for the Lord to come back. We're 2,000 years out now. And a lot of people hear the silence of the trumpet. They're waiting for the trumpet, and it's been silent for so long that people ignore the fact that Christ is coming back and lose so much of the motivation. Uh, to be able to live the Christian life. Uh, and so Peter says, look, don't ever forget this. Don't, don't, don't apply to God the experience of your life. Uh, and Peter is just comparing eternity to history. Uh, Peter's uh, contrasting, if you will, the ways of God with the impatient ways of people. And so then the question might be, you know, why is God waiting? Why is God waiting? Why hasn't the Lord come back? Why doesn't uh, the consummation of the age start? Why, 
Why doesn't uh, the Lord stamp out the evil? And uh, again, the answer is in our text this morning. Don't forget this, that um, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. Uh, And so verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. It's not like he's asleep. It's not like he forgot. He's not slow. He's not off schedule. Uh, He's not slow about keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. But listen, here's the character of God. He's patient. He's patient with you. He's not wanting anybody to perish. That's the character of God. He doesn't want anybody to perish. But he wants everybody to come to repentance. It's the character of God. That's creating the delay from our perspective. Because God doesn't want anybody to perish. He's not slow. He's on time. He hasn't, you know, forgotten his people. He hasn't forgotten his promise. He's not asleep. You know, when I was in uh, India, it was very interesting. We went and visited these Hindu temples. And on your way into a Hindu temple, you have to ring a bell in case the gods are asleep. And you ring this bell so that you wake them up, let them know you're there, you know. Our God's not asleep. Um, No, Peter says, you know, this is the character of God, that he's patient, that he's long-suffering, that he's waiting. Because why? Today is the day of salvation. And God is patient. He doesn't want anybody to perish. God is not unaware of how bad things are in our day. He's not indifferent to how bad things are. He's not perilous that he can't do something about it. But he's merciful. He's full of grace. Uh, Just like his first coming happened in the Bible, uh, it says in Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of time, so his return will happen in the fullness of time, right on schedule. But it's the character of God that doesn't wish for anybody to perish. Uh, God, the Bible says, does not delight in the death of the wicked, but wants everybody to repent, to turn around, uh, to come to him, and that's why God is delaying Jesus' return. Um, It's just like in the days of the flood. Why did it take God 120 years before the rain started to fall in Noah's day? And what was Noah doing, the Bible tells us? He was preaching. He was inviting people to take advantage of the salvation that the ark would provide. He was encouraging people to repent, to stop having this hard attitude toward God, to stop this rebelliousness against God. And to humble their hearts and to submit their hearts to the living God and to get on the boat and to be saved, right? Uh, God delayed the rain 120 years. And I would tell you that God always warns before he acts. He always warns people. He's He's a speaking God. And he always warns people before he acts. If you if you read the Old Testament, it's amazing. And just try to study this one thing. You know, the Old Testament is filled with judgment, and people, you know, react. They say, how can the God of the Old Testament be the same God as the God of the New Testament? But if you read carefully, you'll see how often God warns people before he acts in judgment and gives them ample time to repent and to take him at his word. I think maybe the classic story is, you know, when God decided to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember that? Genesis chapter 18. And uh, God tells Abraham, I'm going to, you know, get Lot out of there and his family because I'm going to destroy the city. It's, the stench has come up to my nostrils, you know, kind of thing. And uh, Abraham, he starts, uh, he, he does a very interesting thing, very humbly and very gently. But he goes back at God and he said, well, would you destroy that whole thing if, if there was like 50 righteous people who lived there? You remember this? 
And God's like, oh, all right, if, if there's 50 people in the whole metropolis, I, I won't destroy it. And so Abraham, he's like very gentle, you know, he kind of goes back to God and he says, you know, I'm just made out of dirt and I'm nobody, but, you know, what if there's five less than 50? What if there's just 45 righteous people there? Would you destroy it and those people with it if there's 45 righteous people? And, 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 and God says, all right, I won't destroy it if there's 45. And, and Abraham's like, oh, forgive me, but can I just approach you one minute? What, what if there's only 30? You remember this story? I mean, it's, it's amazing to me. And, and, and then he gets down to 20, and then he finally says, well, what if there's just 10? Would you destroy the whole thing if you could find 10 righteous people? And I always hook this up in my mind with a, uh, a passage in the New Testament in the Gospels where uh, the question is asked that when Jesus comes back, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find 10 righteous people, you know, on the earth before he destroys it in judgment and so on and so forth and so it's just an interesting passage and he gets it all the way down to 10 and I I just say think of the patience of God he didn't delight in destroying Sodom and Gomorrah that wasn't his attitude broke his heart he loves his people he didn't delight in sending the flood and destroying all the people you know in Noah's day but it's God showing people that they can't save themselves and that they need a savior and so uh, today, for all of these years, you know, Christ has been preached. For 2,000 years, the gospel has been proclaimed. Uh, bazillions of Bibles have been printed and distributed in all kinds of languages. Missionaries have been sent. Churches have, you know, proclaimed the good news of forgiveness. God's offer of reconciliation has been held out for thousands of years now. And God is still waiting for people to repent. For people to repent, to turn around, to face them. Uh, Peter says the same thing in chapter 3 here. If you have your Bibles open, verse 15, look what he says towards the end of this. He says, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Why is God being patient? Why doesn't Jesus come back? Why doesn't judgment fall on all the evil? Doesn't God know what's going on? No, God's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. And uh, Paul, too, says exactly the same thing in um, Romans. In Romans chapter 2 and uh, verse 4, here's what Paul says. He says, uh, do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness and tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? Why hasn't the Lord come back? Well, because... God is patient because God is looking for people to repent and to turn. Now, I would tell you, you know what? I love to study prophecy. I mean, it's like a hobby for me. I just, I want to know what's coming. I, I love studying what the Bible has to say about the future and what the scriptures say is going to happen. And I, I really don't understand people who ignore or stay away from what the Bible says about the future. I don't understand churches that never touch the subject and never preach from Revelation and so on. But I want to ask the question today, what about studying the reason for the Lord's delay? What about being serious about why is it that the Lord hasn't come back yet? And uh, what about the delay, if you, if you want to call it that? What about you know, focusing on people who are far from God? Because that's what God's doing today. Why hasn't the Lord come back yet? 
Well, because there are people that God wants to repent, that God wants to call to himself, that God wants to experience the salvation that we've experienced. And so the question is, you know, what about cooperating with God in what's uppermost in his mind for our day? What about, you know, uh, being serious about seeing unsaved and unchurched people come to Christ? Those for whom this delay is happening. I, I know that there is somebody in your life that God has put there who's far from God that God intends for you to shed the light into their darkness. And I know it because I read every you know, connection card that comes in. And so many of the cards are people saying, please help me, I'm praying for so-and-so that they'll come to Christ. Please pray for you know, my son, or please pray for my spouse, or please pray for my coworker or my neighbor, or somebody that I'm witnessing to that the Lord has put on my heart, some friend, some neighbor, some coworker, some family relative that God has put on my heart. And I wonder, are we as intentional as we need to be? Do we interpret the uh, uh, delay, if you will, uh, of God's son? And I hate to use that word because I don't think it's a delay. I think it's part of the plan. I think it's right on schedule. But the reason that Christ hasn't come back yet is because God is patient, because God is compassionate, because the person that God has put on your heart for you to witness to has not yet come to him. And God is full of compassion, doesn't wish that anybody would perish, And I wonder if we are as intentional as we need to be in uh, focusing on people who are far from God and giving ourselves to be a little bit more bold, take a a little bit more risk in bringing the light into the darkness of the people who are all around us. One of the neat things, I think, when you read the Gospels about Jesus, one of the really neat things about Jesus, tell me if I'm wrong, but people who were not like him at all, were attracted to him. I love that about Jesus. He's holy. He's perfect. He's got all true. Somebody's buying pizza. Ah, thank you. Nick, is it you? Oh, so you get up. Okay. But listen, isn't it true that people who are the, the least like Jesus, he's holy, He's right, he's righteous, he always speaks the truth. But people who were liars or adulterers or sinners of all sorts, tax collectors who were gouging other people, somehow they were attracted to Jesus. The religious people, they were repelled by Jesus. In fact, they accused him of of not being holy because he hung out with people who weren't like him. Now, the church, the Bible says, is the body of Christ in the world today. The presence of Christ in the world today is you and me, the people. The church is people, right? It's not the building. It's you and me. We're the church. And the church is the presence of Christ in the world today. And so I say to myself, shouldn't it be true that people who are not like us, unholy people, unrighteous people, somehow ought to see something in us that attracts them to us. They ought to see the Jesus in us and be attracted, as Peter says, you remember back in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Peter says, look, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that's in you when other people ask you. I mean, Peter just had this expectation that, that people who are not like us are going to be attracted to us and they're going to be asking about, how 
is it that you're able to live like you live? And we've got to always be ready to give the reason. I'll tell you what the reason is. The reason is Jesus Christ. The reason is that God loves me and that he's called me to himself and he's forgiven me and I'm guilt-free and I'm, uh, I have this expectation of being in heaven, this great hope that you know, is a, a generator, a motivator, a, a passion maker of life because I know I have a future no matter what happens in this life and so on and so forth. I love that about Jesus, right? It was scandalous. And I wonder if, you know, there is come a time where, you know, as church people, we just get so comfortable being around other church people. And, and really, to get involved with people who are not like us, it's messy. Isn't it messy? You know, we're reading a book as elders called uh, Deep and Wide. And one of the, the things, one of the big points in that book is that if you're really serious about reaching people who are far from God, it's always messy. It's just neat and clean to be involved with Christians. You can trust what they say. They tell you the truth. If they say they're going to be there, they're there. If they say they're going to do something, they do it. I mean, it's kind of nice to live with those kind of people. But if you get out into the world and you're trying to build a relationship with somebody who's far from God, well, it's a real pain in the neck, isn't it? Because they say things. They're not telling you the truth. They promise things. They don't do. They, you know, they, they say they'll show up. They don't show up. They say they'll, you know, you know and, and it's just, it's hard. And like, who needs it? I'll tell you who needs it. God needs it. God is patient. He doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants people to experience the forgiveness and the truth that we have. And he's called us to be the body of Christ, the presence of Christ. And so I'm asking the question this morning, if those of us who make up Trinity Church, you know, are we a church where people are finding Christ? Are we doing our share when it comes to the reason for the delay that uh, Peter says, the whole reason that Jesus hasn't come back yet, and he is coming, and he, he's, he's, he's coming sooner than he's ever come before, right? We're closer than ever before, which ought to, it seems to me, motivate us even more. It's not because God is slow or sleeping or something like that. It's because he's patient. Are you patient with non-Christians? Or do you say, you know what, well, I shared the gospel with them, they're not interested, I'm done. You know, or I invite them to church, they didn't come, and so they had their chance. Or are you like God, like the character of God, like patient, not wishing for anybody to perish uh, for all of eternity? Are we intentional enough about uh, joining with God and doing what he's doing? Can we, can we be really a God-first believer without holding hands with God and sharing the good news of the gospel with the people around us? Can you be a God-first believer? and not be involved with God in what he's doing in our day. Um, are non-believers our target audience? Is that our focus? Uh, do we realize that we're living in the day of salvation, but that the day of consummation, the day of the Lord, the day of judgment is closer than ever? Do we invite people to church? Or are we just happy to be here ourselves because it works for us? Are we that selfish that we would want to keep the good news, right? It's always... You know, the example of somebody who discovered the cure for cancer and they just don't tell anybody. Well, we've got something better than that. We've got the cure for death. <laughs> if you think about it, how can you not tell the next person uh, where to find the good news? Uh, do we share the story of what God has done in our life? Do we pray for people who are far from God? How, uh, how often do people ever ask us, you know, what, what's the reason for the way you live? 
What's the reason for the smile on your face? What's the reason for the optimism you have here in the hospital laying next to me? What's the reason for your attitude when your parents have just died? Well, I know something you don't know, you know. Are we patient? Are we long-suffering like Jesus? Or are we like James and John? You know, when Jesus was here, I'm reading from Luke chapter 9. Um, here's, here's, uh, as the time approached for Jesus to be taken up into heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent his messengers ahead, and uh, they went to a Samaritan village. Now, the Samaritans hated the Jews, you remember? A Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people in the Samaritan village did not welcome them. So here's Jimmy and Johnny, James and John. And uh, they're on assignment from Jesus, and they go to this little village to make things ready, and they get rejected. And the next verse says this. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy these people? The equivalent of saying, we want Jesus to come back and judge this evil world and get rid of all these evil people. And Here's what the next verse says. Jesus turned to them and rebuked them. You do not know what kind of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. That's why Jesus came, to save us from the judgment of God. You and I are all partakers in that. And Jesus is patient, waiting for the next person to have what we have. Uh, are we like Jesus, or are we like James and John? We're going to go to the communion table, and uh, we're going to celebrate the fact that Jesus gave his life for the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. Are you willing to do your part in seeing the next person come to repentance? Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, this is such an instructive passage about the Lord's return here in Peter. And Lord, uh, I just uh, love to think about your character, how patient. And I, I, I just look around the room and I think about how patient you are with each one of us. How you drew us to yourself. And some of us took longer than with others. But you're a patient God. And and we're all in the process of trying to live a life that's worthy of the calling that you've put on us to be your sons and daughters. And I pray that you would help us as a church, Father, to recognize that this, if we can call it a delay, is simply giving time for other people to come to experience the great salvation. This is the day of salvation. What a great thing it is to have salvation, full and free. But there are people all around us, Father, who are in the dark, who are clueless, who are destined for eternal judgment. And I know that you take delight in laying one or two or ten of these people on each of us, and each of us is unique, and we have different ways of communicating what you're doing in our lives to the people around us. And I pray that you would grant us more fruitfulness, Father, that we would use our baptistry more often because people would be coming to discover the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.